You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. So Father, we, um, we stand here uh, in your presence uh, just coming off of these incredible lyrics that we've sung about who you are. Uh, Father, I, my prayer this morning is that as we look at this text that's been given to us, that we would just invite you to reveal yourself to us. That, that we would just take a look today and just um, come to the conclusion of what you know, you've proclaimed, and we, we attempt to believe every day that, that Jesus is better than anything that we could ever imagine. So may you bless this time. May the words that I share that you've given me um, be clear to our minds, our ears, uh, and then may your spirit move in our hearts, God, to apply this to our lives. So, uh, God, prove yourself this morning. Show us your power <clears throat> through your word. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> on, um, on one of our, our trips that our, our senior hires have made to, uh, to Cameroon over the years, we were one year, we were... Uh, Constructing, helping to construct a camp uh, up on uh, Mount Oku is the is a volcanic mountain that it's on, and um, it was just we were just getting under construction. So in order to make food for the team and to do what we needed, we actually were using the home of uh, of a Christian family that was down the hill, and so we'd have to make that journey. Uh, during the day, those that were working on the food crew would walk down and they would spend the day there. And so uh, one day I decided I was going to walk down and just check it out and see how everybody was doing. And when I got there, um, there were these two young girls that were arriving with these massive water jugs that they were carrying on their heads. And, uh, and they needed to go back for more. And I said, well, I'll come with you. I'll carry the water. And so we walked about a half mile up to where there was a stream, and they filled the jugs up, and I said, all right, I'll take that big one. And they put it on my head, and I thought, this was a bad idea, <laughs> really bad. And so we walked the trail, and it was, I will tell you, it was miserable. Uh, and, and by the time we got back to the house, there was more water on me and on the trail than was in the jug, so that they sent me back for another round to go back. Don't spill it uh, this time. And, and it was that. And so I say that, first of all, I'll just say this. Something that gets under my skin a lot is when people go on mission trips and they come back and go, you're going to get more out of this trip than, than what you leave behind. And I always challenge our team to say, don't let that be true. You give it all. You, you pour your heart out. You give people Jesus. And if you come back changed, it's only because the Holy Spirit did it. But don't make, don't make that your goal. And please don't make that your testimony. What happened to me was so much better than what I was able to do over there. Well, then don't go, right? And so, so but I would tell you that in that moment, there was a lot going on in my mind of, of exactly what I try to tell people not to think about. But I'm thinking, man, I don't appreciate water enough back home, right? I know I'm supposed to drink a lot of it. I don't. I do. I do drink a lot of water. It's just mixed with Diet Coke, uh, right? It's in my coffee. It's in my, my Coke. Um, but but I, I, I was processing that. Uh, and, you know, I went and looked this week on just kind of statistics about water. I, I think I heard this at some point. It never really resonated, obviously, because I, again, haven't appreciated water that much. But uh, 
Three quarters of the earth's surface is covered in water. Um, but of that uh, water that covers our earth, only 3% of that is fresh water. In other words, it, only 3% of all the water that's accessible to us is actually uh, drinkable. It's fresh water that we can use. But what's more interesting is of that 3% that's fresh water, uh, only 5% of it is actually accessed and used by us. The other 2.5% of fresh water is frozen in glaciers and icebergs and underground. Can you believe that? Out of all the water in the world, that we only have access to 0.5% of it. And the question is, and what do you do with it? We do a lot with it. And that 5% is just continually recycled, right? I mean, some goes into our rivers and then it gets purified and then it comes back to us. Some of it evaporates, goes into the atmosphere and then comes back down into the ground and it waters our plants. We use water for, for everything, right? We, we drink it for refreshment. We add it to our food for cooking. We use it to wash our cars. We use it to wash our faces and our bodies. There's just really kind of no limit to what we use it for. However... Uh, for myself, I still find myself thinking about that, that only 0.5% of the water in the world is actually usable. And I, I even thought about, like, as I'm Sunday mornings, right, I'm, my, my, I'm preaching the sermon to myself in, in the bathroom as I'm getting ready, and I'm staring in the mirror, and I'm shaving, and I'm uh, brushing my teeth, and the whole time that I'm doing it, the water's running, and I got the shower on because the steam feels good, and I'm like, wow, I got to preach a, a, a message opening up about how we waste water you know, hey pot, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things, if we, don't, if we don't truly understand, like I don't, I can tell you this, uh, I know water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, there you go, science, that's all I know. I don't know. I don't know all the ins and outs about it, but here's what I know. If you want to try to make water yourself, they say it's just, it's incredibly, it's just too expensive. It can't happen. We've got to use what it is that's been given to us. So if you don't appreciate what you have, if you don't have a deeper understanding of this, then you, then you will waste it. Now, this is not an environmental TED Talk today. I just want, that's the point I want us to, to get this morning. If we, don't, if we don't understand it, then we will squander it and we will waste it. And that leads us into our text today. So if you haven't been with us, if you've been gone for a while, we're walking through the book of Matthew so that we can understand who Jesus is and how he discipled so that we can know what we're supposed to do in following him to disciple others. We're uh, in this section of the ministry of Jesus where he's now turned his attention from the crowd where he's been working miracles, he's been preaching incredible messages, and now he's turned his focus to his his disciples, his smaller group. He's hiked them up to Caesarea Philippi where, where he uh, asked them, who do you say that I am? So he's been showing himself, revealing himself now for years. And now he turns to his small group of disciples. He says, okay guys, after all you've seen, after all you've heard, and being with me, who am I? And, and they respond, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the promised one, the one that scriptures say is going to come and is going to rescue us from our slavery. And what we know, because the disciples have made it known, is that they still believe, even though they, they claim they know you are from the heavens, you've come from God, 
you are the Son of God, and we believe that you're the Messiah, but their belief still is of this earth. You're going to be the king that has been promised is going to reign on a throne and is going to give us our freedom here. They weren't thinking eternally, and they weren't even thinking uh, in deeper in a spiritual way. For them at the time, it was, we know that, that you do incredible things. We know that you've got power, and we can't wait till you sit on the throne because then we finally get to rule. And, and Jesus is trying to clarify that for them, and he needs them to understand it because he says, what you're about to see, what's about to take place, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to willingly give my life over to the authorities. And I will lay down my life. And he would be beaten and he would be put on a cross. And he would die. And he said, and I will resurrect again. And the, the response of these disciples who minutes earlier said, we know who you are. You're the Messiah. All of a sudden are like, no, -uh, that's never going to happen. We will not let you go. We won't let you die. We're, we're going to make sure of it because we need you to be king. And Jesus has to rebuke them. And slowly, during his time with them, he's preparing them for what is to come. Because not only is he going to die and resurrect, but he's going to ascend into heaven uh, where he will sit on the throne forever. And then it was going to be the, the role of those disciples to take this message of Jesus out to the world that then gets passed on through generations and to us to do as well. And if they didn't fully believe in who Jesus was, they weren't going to do what it is that he was going to call them to do. And so he slowly begins to kind of peel back the layers to show them who he is. And what we find today at the beginning of Matthew 17 is um, the most powerful moment when he, before his death, that he shares with them and shows them who he is. So this is uh, Matthew 17. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8. Because there's a lot in this text, and we're going to use the second half of this story of the transfiguration next week. So if you're willing and able, let's stand together. I want to read this to you. This is what Matthew writes. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Amen. You can have a seat. That's my hope that today, just know this, uh, that, that as we walk through this text, I want us to leave here and in our own hearts and our minds that that's what we take away today, that Jesus only, who he is, how much he matters how much we love Him and appreciate Him. And to do that, just talking about water this morning and, and how there are so many uses for it, so many ways that it can, uh, can change our lives. Um, if we don't understand it, we will waste it. And it happens oftentimes when it comes to us 
as humans and our view of Jesus. We all at different times take little bits and pieces of him for what it is that we think we want and we need. But today I want us to see Jesus as the disciples did in his fullness and a true understanding. And so to do that, first of all, we have to understand that he was more than a person. If, if you're not familiar with just following Jesus or Christian faith, oftentimes we can find that, that people see Jesus. He was a great man. He was a great prophet. He did good things. But I want us to, to truly all know and understand and believe today that Jesus is more than a person. We are talking now, they said about six days later, about a week later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, takes them up to a mountain. We understand they're probably back in Galilee by now. And he uh, has some time, and he takes them away so that he can teach them something. They've journeyed home, and now Jesus kind of leaves everybody behind and just grabs these three. And he says, uh, come with me up on the mountain. Now, if you were to read Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, you would find a parallel telling of what Matthew is telling of the transfiguration. You just have it from a different perspective and a little bit different detail. But Luke tells us that, that he took them up on the mountain so that they could spend some time in prayer. This was his inner circle. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus often during some of the most intense times. They were the only ones that were there when he raised Jairus' daughter back to life. They're the only ones that were, uh, that were brought within proximity of him when he cried out in the garden, uh, asking God to take away uh, the, uh, the, the responsibility of having to die and suffer on the cross. And they were the only three that would have heard that. The others were uh, on the outskirts of the garden. Jesus had an inner circle that he deeply invested in, and these three would become the great pillars of the church that would found the church and take the Great Commission out and do incredible things. I think for us, just for some personal discipleship application, is that we, we all who are called to go and make disciples need to have those that we are deeply investing in. Years ago, uh, when I was doing youth ministry, and we would talk about discipleship, and I, uh, all of our leaders uh, would have a group of 10, 15, maybe 20 students in their small group. And, and, and I would say, find the one or two in that group that, that just seemed to be passionate, that, 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 would, that get it. And then you just invest in them. You've got a small group that, yeah, we're gonna, you're going to pray for, you're going to spend time in the Word with, you're going to connect with, you're going to know them, but you cannot disciple 20 people at a time. One or two that you can replicate your life into. If Jesus had 12 and he had a, an inner circle of three, what makes us think that we ha have the ability to disciple that many people? But the response that I would often get from people, well, that's not fair. Right? A lot of people read this text. Well, it's not really fair. Why those three? Like, shouldn't everybody get the same level? Well, they didn't. There were three that Jesus was, had a purpose for. He was investing in them and was going to replicate big things in their life. Not to take anything away from the others, but, but these were the three that he saw something in, that he loved dearly, and they loved him. And he was going to pass on the ministry into their hands probably because they would be the ones that would truly, 
deeply. Believe and then, and then share that belief with the others. Belief is a firm conviction. We follow Jesus out of belief. We preach truth out of what we believe. We evangelize with passion out of what we believe. And belief is a trust based on what we know is true through knowledge and through wisdom and through experience. And Jesus has been doing this. He's been giving these men knowledge. He's been giving them experience. And now it was time for them to truly believe in who he was. Jesus says in John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Right? Belief is at the core of it. If you believe in who I am, you, can, you will go out and do the works that I do. In other words, you're my disciple. You'll just replicate your, myself into you. You will replicate me into the life that you live. But Jesus says, not only will you do the works that I do, but if you believe in me, you will do even greater works. If you truly believe in who he is, then what can stop you from stepping out and boldly proclaiming the truth and living for Christ? So Jesus says, even greater works if you do it in my name, so that the Father would be glorified through me. So Jesus takes these three men up to invest in them. Another possible reason that it was three is based on just ancient Jewish culture, is that you needed to have three people that were a witness to something in order uh, for others to believe. You had to have three witnesses in order to be able to prove something in a court of law, Uh, even ancient Uh, law that Moses gave is that you had to have three witnesses if somebody was going to be held accountable for a murder because one person could make it up. Two could have different perspectives, but a third would bring the truth. And so here are three men that Jesus brings up on the mountain to witness this incredible uh, event. And so let's talk about that event, the significance of it. He was transfigured before them. That word in the Greek is metamorpho, and it's where we get the word metamorphosis, where there's a a change that takes place, a change that that happens from the inside out, a, a transformation. Luke tells us that Jesus' appearance, his face changed. It became bright as a light. It was a flash of lightning, and his clothes became white. Mark, in his telling of the story, says that he became Uh, his clothes became so white, whiter than anyone could ever wash them or bleach them. So in other words, what what they were seeing was something that they've never seen before. Brilliant and shining. And we have to ask, why? Why did this need to take place? Why did it happen? Well, again, uh, there was still some unbelief, some misunderstanding, some Uh, some questions that the disciples had about fully who Jesus was. So he was letting this small select few in on this deeper understanding of who he was. Exodus 33, Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's getting the law. That that law he's going to have to take down and he's going to have to give it to the people. And they're going to have to follow it and they're going to have to believe him. And so Moses needs a full conviction. Even though he's having a conversation with God, God is, his presence is in this cloud that's enveloped the mountain, and Moses is having a conversation, but you can imagine, he, look, God, I need, I need a little more. I need something that when I go down and tell people that I can 
be fully convicted of what needs to happen so that they can be fully convicted. And so Moses says, so can can I see your glory? In other words, can I see you? And God's response is, well, because I like you, Moses, right? Because I believe in you, I'm going to give you, I can't fully give you what you asked for because you don't know what you asked for. For if you would see me in all of my glory, in basically it's, it's God's holiness, visible holiness. If you would see it, you wouldn't survive. It would kill you. So, so he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you see my goodness. One, one small characteristic of God. I'm going to let you see my goodness. And so he tells Moses, get inside of this cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by. And as God passes by, he covers Moses' eyes until his backside is showing, and Moses catches a glimpse of the backside of God. Whatever that looks like, I don't know. No one can really explain it. All we know is that just that small peak uh, basically uh, reflected onto Moses so powerfully that when he came down the mountain, all of the people uh, made him put a veil on his face because they were being blinded by the effects of Moses having seen God. Right? Just a small taste of him in his, and his glory and his goodness, his beauty, his perfection. If you think about that, what, if you picture that in your mind without even having to read Scripture, what, if you had to describe what does holiness look like? It's, it's indescribable. It's brilliant. It's perfection. It's the brightest of bright. It's the whitest of white. It's beautiful. God's glory is so brilliant and so bright physically that Revelation tells us that in heaven, in the eternal kingdom in which we dwell, there, there will be no sun. There's no light needed in heaven because God's presence is there. He himself is the center of all things. Knowing this and understanding this, when Jesus himself becomes like lightning, brighter than white, what's happening is that his true nature, Jesus being fully human and fully God, present among these men, his, the fullness of his divinity has not been revealed or seen by them. They've seen him in the fullness of humanity, his activity uh, as the Son of God. But when he is revealed to them in this brightness, it's his true nature that's being shown. He wasn't reflecting the glory of God. It was shining from the inside out. It's a proclamation of who he is, that Jesus is God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's more than an earthly king. He's so much more than a powerful man, more than anything we can imagine. Jesus is God and it was being put on display in the presence of the disciples. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. He's also more than a personality. Imagine these three men, they're there praying with Jesus. There's all of a sudden, somebody's having a conversation. We're trying to pray here. What's going on? And, and they can maybe, maybe there's this intense, just 
light that's shining as they're trying to keep their eyes closed or they're praying, but they're falling asleep and they kind of come out of this, uh, this sleepiness and there stands Jesus, but it, it doesn't look like him. They can recognize him, but he's very different and he's talking with two men, Moses uh, and Elijah. The big question that everyone always asks them is how do they know that it's Moses and Elijah? Right? They don't have photos of them. They don't know what they look like. Well, it's because my understanding is, as we're told in Mark, that he's having a conversation with them about his departure. That's the conversation that's taking place. I don't know. We're not told what the details are of that conversation, but I have to imagine that they're probably all talking about their departures. Because Moses, as we know, led the people out of the promised land, and, and be, but because of his disobedience to God, he only got to go to the edge of it. And up on a mountain, as he sends all of his people away, he passes away. God uh, takes his life. His life ends there. Maybe he's talking about his experience on that mountain when, when he departed the earth. Maybe Elijah chimes in and says, well, I don't know what it's like to die because I was on top of a mountain and God's presence came for me and he sent uh, a fiery chariot for me that I got in and ushered me into glory. But your departure is going to be much different. It'll be painful. It'll be a struggle. Uh, it, it will, it'll be on a cross not everyone will understand it. We don't know what the conversation was, but my, my belief is that's how the disciples knew who it was. It is that they are seeing the, the great heroes of their faith standing and having a conversation with Jesus, which only adds to the confidence that they would have in who Jesus was. That these two men would come and, and be spending time with Jesus. Moses and Elijah were, were the, the Old Testament representations of all of the law and the prophets. They, they, Moses was, was the, one of the greatest leaders of all time, but also uh, the most significant in the Old Testament as he rescues the people from Egypt and leads them through, gives them the law, uh, and helps them to understand who their one true God is and then takes them into uh, that promised land. The book of Deuteronomy 34 ends with the death of Moses. And it says in verse 10, Since then, no prophet has ever risen up in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all of those signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all of his officials in the whole land, and no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in all of the sight of Israel. It's, it, there's this statement that you have never seen anybody so great like Moses. There's a reason why Moses is there and talking with Jesus. Because nobody's ever been like him to be used by God in such a powerful way. Elijah the greatest of all the prophets. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And, and what does Jesus say? He says, I've come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And so here he is with these two significant men. And all throughout Scripture, there's great heroes of the faith that have done incredible things. 
We love to read their stories. We love to apply whatever lessons we can from their lives. We, we study individuals in our, especially in our, elem- whoa, right. maybe he doesn't want me to say this part. But we study, we study this in, in, in our Sunday school, especially as kids. We go and we learn about the people, and then we learn the lessons of what God did in their life and how we can apply it to ours. But what, we've, what we miss so often is that no matter who we're reading about in Scripture, no matter what person that we're studying in, uh, in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, every event that takes place in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every event that takes place in the New Testament points back to Jesus. All of Scripture is pointing us to the Savior of the world and our need for Him and what it is that He has done for us. Moses, in being called out of, he's in hiding in the wilderness, and he gets called out by God to say, I'm going to use you to do something great. You're going to rescue my people out of Egypt. They're in slavery. They need to be set free. There are people that I've chosen, and you are going to lead them. You're going to show them how they need to live, and they're going to struggle, but, but they're going to make it, and I'm going to take them to the promised land, and you're the one that's going to do it. That is the story of Jesus. The whole point of that, the reason why God lays it out that way is exactly so that when Christ would come to this earth, people would go, oh yeah, I get it. He, he's the sacrifice. He's the blood that was shed that would allow us to be freed from our slavery to sin and that we would follow him through this life, following what it is that he wants for us to take us into the presence of God, that we would live for all of eternity. Moses is the representation the, the, the one who, the life he lived, the ministry he had, was pointing to who Jesus would be so that when people would see Jesus, they would just know this is the promised one. Elijah, the same thing, the greatest prophet. He, he also raised people from the dead. He went up on a mountaintop and went to do battle against 850 false prophets of Baal and he calls down fire and God destroys all of them. Elijah's role was to go to the people of Israel and say, you need to repent so that you don't have to face punishment. Jesus was often mistaken for Elijah because that's how powerful he was. These are the two greatest characters in the true story of God that we find in Scripture. But what's amazing is that that when God speaks to the disciples on the mountain, He says nothing about Moses and Elijah. He just says, this is my son. This is your focus. This is where I want you to put your trust. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a mere man with a nature like us. Great men who did great things, but Jesus is God. He is the central focus of the entire narrative of Scripture. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus is, uh, appears to a couple of his followers uh, on the road, and they're, they're walking, and Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, have you not heard? Have you not paid attention? To, do you not know what just took place in Jerusalem over the past week? And they explained to him uh, about this man, Jesus, and what took place, and his death. And, and, but we thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was the Savior, and now he's dead and now we hear that he may have raised from the dead and we don't understand it at all 
And Jesus uh, says to them, don't be afraid and don't be confused. Did I not tell you that everything written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms needed to be fulfilled about me? And then it says, beginning with Moses and then teaching through all of the prophets, Jesus explained how all of the scriptures were concerning himself. Jesus is there in the center of Moses and Elijah to show the disciples that this, is, this was all about me. I am truly the sent Savior of the world, Messiah, who's come to rescue you. And then we have this Peter moment, right? Because Peter always has to disrupt these serious moments, you know, because of his lack of knowledge or understanding, and he's known as the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He, he's, he, he's rubbing his eyes and maybe coming out of this sleep-slash-prayer time that they were having, and he sees what's going on, and his instant reaction is one that I think would be mine as well, right? We all get it. You've been to camp. That, that last night, Friday night, campfire, Everybody starts sharing their stories, and what does everybody say? They're like, I don't want to go home. Like, this, this is too good. I don't want to leave. God's doing something great here. And that's Peter's response. So he just says to Jesus, hey, want me to build some tents? I'll build three of them, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And the idea is, and let's just stay here. Let's not go to Jerusalem. Let's not, let's not go forward with the departure that you're talking about but let's just be here because this is good for me because he wasn't thinking about again about the mission let's camp here and as important and significant as it was um, they needed to go and so what happens is you know when when peter rebuked jesus before jesus got after him and said get behind me Satan. And this time, Jesus says nothing because all of a sudden the presence of God descends on this mountain and God speaks in the cloud. And he speaks the same words here to usher in the end of Jesus' life on earth uh, as he did when he spoke to usher in the beginning of Jesus' ministry three years earlier upon his baptism when he said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. When he went to his baptism, I'm well pleased because he left the glory of heaven to come and to serve and to give his life up. Here now, he says, I'm well pleased because he's fulfilled and is going to fulfill the mission. And his words, though, the most powerful words to these disciples were, he's, it's added. It's not there with his baptism, but it's here now. Listen to him. Listen to him. They would need to remember that they would, because it's about obedience it's about doing what he was supposed to do. And it's the same words that Moses shared in Deuteronomy 18, 15 with the people when he knew that he wasn't going to be traveling with them. And he said, there is going to come a prophet much greater than I that's going to come after me. He's going to come out of you, the people, this nation. You're going to raise up a leader. And when he comes, listen to him. And listen is not just here, but it's do what it is that he's told you to do. The words of the Father proclaim that Jesus was more than a, a representative of God, more than a person on this earth, but that he was 
Jesus, God's Son, a member of the Holy Trinity. His divine presence there made known on the earth. God in the flesh, the one who'd come to redeem humanity through his death and his resurrection. And to get to that salvation, he would go to Jerusalem to lay down his life and the disciples would have to follow and obey. Not only that, but then when he says to go and make disciples. That's the mission that we're on. But it starts with believing in who Jesus is. in, in, In all of his entirety, that he truly is God in the flesh, the Son of God who willingly gave his life up that we could be rescued from sin. And we live into that because anything less than that, we waste what it is that's been given to us. May we, may we do more than appreciate Jesus, but may we bow before him and follow him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we again just say thank you for your word. We're so blown away by you, Jesus, and what it is you were willing to do for us. Help us to live it out truly what it is that we believe each and every day. We love you. We ask you to continue to fill us with your spirit so that we could in the, in the world that we live in and the bumps that come along the road, that we would never, that we would never fade in clinging to knowing who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for your life. Amen.